years. And if you've never been here before, again, welcome. We're studying the fourth book of the New Testament. This is the Gospel of John. This is a wonderful way of getting a better understanding of who, who Jesus really is and what He was all about. John chapter 13 is where we'll be this morning, and we're going to begin in verse 1. The text is there in the order of worship, if you want to just follow there. Uh, you know, one of my, I'd say, least favorite, I don't know if you'd call it feeling or, or sensations, is when you are extremely occupied and either someone is trying to get your attention or there's other important things you need to do and you're completely overwhelmed with this other thing that preoccupies you. Um, when I was in the middle of my, my time in seminary, in between the fall semester and the spring semester was a three-week winter term. And it was sort of like a summer school schedule where, where you just take one subject and you meet for like two and a half hours and very dense. You're covering a lot of material very quickly. And it was winter term Hebrew. And the Friday that I was going to finish this three-week winter term class, I was driving down to Mississippi to propose to Dana. And I would just like to recommend to you that if you're moving toward engagement anytime soon, not do it under those circumstances. Uh, You know, I'm just sitting here having to work on uh, verbs and paradigms of this thing that looks like no language I've ever worked with before. And from a distance, and this is kind of back in olden times, you know, kind of more pre-internet, I'm trying to figure out getting the ring to the right spot and flowers here. And In fact, let me tell you all about it. What I did that night, I'm just kidding. But, uh, but now just trying to work out these logistics, and I just felt stretched all over the place. And, and you know, maybe you've had this sensation where you are on the threshold of this important thing, like there is sort of a defining phone call that you're waiting on, and 10 seconds before it comes in, someone else calls you and is like, hey, what's going on? And, you, you know, which, there's nothing wrong with them doing that, but you're just about to break a chair over your head because of the stress. The reason I bring that up is that as we get into John 13, we are beginning this new section of this book, and it's what's been called the Upper Room Discourse. And if you have one of these Bibles, you know, some Bibles will print uh, where Jesus' words are in red letters. And if you look at this part of the Gospel of John in, in, a, in what they call a red-letter Bible, there's just red everywhere. And it's where he is in this upper room, and then some uh, moments right after that. And he is hours away from being arrested. And we're going to have to keep reminding ourselves in the weeks ahead that, you know, it's going to take us weeks to study through this portion. But all this happens in one night. And it's the night he's going to be arrested. And the next day he's going to be crucified. And the thing is, he knows that. And this is, this is going to be the most frightening thing he ever has or ever will go through. And we're saying that about Jesus, fully God, but He's fully man. And it was so frightening that when He got on the cusp of it, He sweat blood and was overwhelmed. Now, here's the amazing thing. When He is just a few hours away from that, and He knows that's how it's going to be. 
what you find him doing is yet again putting his disciples at the forefront of his energy, the forefront of his attention, and teaching them, here's what the kingdom of God is like. And it's absolutely counterintuitive to everything that comes natural to them or to us. John 13, beginning in verse 1. John loves to frame what Jesus does in relation to feasts, the Jewish feasts. Verse 1. Now, before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that His hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved His own who were in the world, He loved them to the end. During supper, when the devil had already put into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments and taking a towel, tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. He came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? Jesus answered him, What I am doing doing, you do not understand now, but afterward you will understand. Peter said to him, You shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered him, If I do not wash you, you have no share with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. Jesus said to him, The one who has bathed does not need to wash, except for his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not every one of you. For he knew who was to betray him. That was why he said, not all of you are clean. When he had washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, Do you understand what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you also should do just as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the Word of God stands forever. Let's pray together. Our Father, we who are not naturally servants, we who naturally would aspire to be masters, we pray that you would enable us to hear you. And out of selfish people, you would make loving men and women and children. And we ask this looking to you and your word. In Jesus' name, amen. As, as we're gathered up here 
Sunday worship, and uh, most everybody who's going to be here, I think, is here in the room. I I want you to think about something. I want you to think about what goes on inside of you. And really, as I say this, this, I hope this will resonate more with those of you who are members or who are regulars, not so much with someone visiting for the first time. And let me keep going. I want you to think about what goes on inside of you when you see people in this room that you don't know. Now, I would never do this, but let's say that in this room everybody was a member or a regular except for one person. Now, again, I will never do this, but let's say, just for our hypothesis here, that in the service I identified that one person and had them stand up. Him or her said, uh, so-and-so is visiting downtown Presbyterians worship this morning, and I really would like you to make that person feel welcome. I would think that if that person didn't melt at that moment from, you know, just embarrassment and exposure, I, I would think we would be all over them, you know? I, I, I think that people would, they would have to almost fight their way out to get to their car. There would be people greeting them and maybe 19 lunch invitations, and that would be great. But the thing is, and this is a real blessing, guys, and this is God's goodness. This is not our cleverness. On any Sunday like this, it may be that 20% of the room are visitors. And the members and the regulars probably know that. But it may be that that response actually makes you withdraw. Now, why is that? And I think we could say it's a lot of things. One is that just naturally... We tend to be selfish. I, I do. And I, so I, my natural inclination is if it's between walking up to someone I've never met and talking to my friend over here that I haven't seen all week, my natural inclination is to do what? Go to the friend. And I've always been that way. Unnatural to go up to the person I don't know. Okay, there's that. It's, it's natural. We want to do what's comfortable. But I would say in our hearts there's something else. And it's this. I feel deep down that love inside of me or kindness or interest in others is this limited resource. And it is spread about as thin as I want to spread it right now. And I'm, I'm hitting fumes all the time. And that if I walk up to somebody who's a big question mark because I don't know this person and I don't know what's going on with them, and if I end up meeting out of all the visitors, the weirdo. And they don't have any friends, and they interpret this that now I'm their friend, and they ask for my contact info, and in a moment of weakness I give it to them. And this opens up this floodgate of need. You know, that could happen. And so, let's just play it safe. Now, again, I can't speak for you. I know that goes on inside of me, but I bet it goes on inside of you. And it really, it it flushes something out, and it's this. It's not that hard to be nice. It does take some energy to be nice, no doubt about it. And we're in a cultural setting where it's commendable to be nice. But to love is unnatural. To give where you thought you had no more to give. Because the the nature of love is not just niceness. 
Jesus, the most loving man who ever lived, there are some moments when he is decidedly not nice. He is the opposite of nice because he loves. But the nature of love is sacrifice. What does that look like and where do you get it? That's what I want to look at in this text, is those two things. The picture of love and the source of love. What does love look like, fleshed out, and where do you get it? All right, so first off, the picture of love, and then later, the source of love. And I want to look, I want to look at two things here. I want to look at, look at how Jesus violated cultural norms, and then what, what you might call relational norms. Cultural norms and relational norms. All right, first off, how does... How do his actions in John 13 violate cultural norms? Look in verse 5. What are Jesus' followers, his band in this upper room, what are they called? They're called disciples. Now, if you've been around the Bible or you've been around church and you hear the word disciples, you can just hear that as like that's a synonym for Christian or religious people. It was a technical term in that day. And in that setting, what was a disciple? A disciple was a man who had a rabbi and who sat at the feet of this rabbi and tried to master that rabbi's take on life. With other disciples, you would compare notes. You would write down everything possible that the rabbi said exactly the way the rabbi said it. You would, you would uh, review. You would memorize. That's why these eyewitness accounts, by the way, are so reliable the comparison of information that was memorized. Disciples. And then what does Jesus say that He is? What's the dynamic between them? Verse 13. What does He say? You call me teacher and Lord, and you're right, for so I am. In other words, He's acknowledging there is a dynamic in this room where I'm in charge, I'm the teacher, I'm the rabbi, and you are my students, my disciples, who follow me. Now, that's not unusual. But man, what happens next is unusual. What did he do? Look in verse 4. This has the the strangest introduction in verse 3. It says that Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into His hands, He owns the cosmos, all things in His hands, that He had come from God and was going back to God, what? You know, He shone like the sun. It says, knowing those things, verse 4, he rose from supper, he laid aside his outer garments, and taking a towel, he tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. Now, this is where we must, especially if you come from a churched past, we must stop and try to see this the way they saw it. If you have ever taken place in a Maundy Thursday service, Maundy Thursday is the Thursday before Easter. Uh, In some church traditions, part of a Maundy Thursday service is that leaders of the church or uh, priests or clergy or whatever will wash, or the church members will wash one another's feet, and it's sort of lovely and it's humble and it kind of reminds you about the best leadership is is servant leadership. Okay, we have those categories. These men did not. 
washing another man's feet was so lowly that in, it's pretty much agreed by historians that in most of the Jewish culture of that day, you wouldn't even let a Jewish slave do that. You would get a Gentile slave to wash a Jewish person's feet. Unheard of. And on top of that, there's one scholar who did... This is why it's great to have scholars to do the, to do the hard work on stuff like this. He said that there is not one single ancient source, Greco-Roman ancient sources or Jewish, where a superior washes the feet of an inferior, except for John 13. And it's so shocking that you hear it in Peter's voice. Did you hear his response? You know, if there's one thing that after three years or so, they probably would have learned by now is don't tell Jesus that you don't know what you're doing. You know, don't say to Jesus, no, I'm stopping you from your plan. And Peter does that because he is seeing it having never been to a Monday Thursday service and having never read John 13. And it's absolutely bizarre to him that his master, the rabbi, the teacher, he took off his outer tunic, wraps a towel around his waist and kneels before these twelve men and washes their feet. And you think, you know, and not to belabor the point, but if you spent a minute on each foot, that's almost half an hour of palpable awkwardness. And he just lets them marinate in it. And he finishes, and he puts his outer garment back on and says, do you understand what I did? And they do not. Now let me say this. Something that as a church we bend over backwards to communicate is that you are not saved by your own actions. You can't be accepted by God because you were good enough or you did enough or you obeyed enough. We can only be made right with God through grace, unearned, unmerited favor in the face of demerit on our part. Grace. And here's the thing. As you hear that, what can happen inside of us is that, okay, therefore the word do or obey is a word I want to avoid now. You know, before I thought I had to obey, I had to do for God to like me, but you're telling me about grace, so wow, whew, I'm glad I don't have to worry so much about do or obey. Listen to the weight of Jesus' words. Verse 15. What does He say? For I have given you an example that you also should do just as I have done to you. And look at verse 17. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. And here's the thing. We don't want Jesus just to be an example in the way that we understand Him. Do you you see what I'm saying? We don't want to present Jesus just as, here is the greatest moral example that ever lived such selflessness, such integrity. Now, let's go out of here and be like Him. That's a crushing command. He's not just an example, but He is our example. 
And he says, okay, I just did something that made Peter's jaw drop. It made all your jaws drop. And here's what I want you to do. I want you to do that with one another. And he even says this, if you know these things, you'll demonstrate it not by filling in a blank on a test. You'll demonstrate it by doing it. And if you do it, you'll be blessed. On another occasion, this is in the Gospel of Mark, Mark 3.35, Jesus said this, If anyone does the will of God, he is my, uh, he is my sister or brother or mother. If he does the will of God. What does Jesus want his followers to do? He's not speaking to a random crowd. This is his band of disciples, his band of followers. If we are a group of people identifying ourselves as disciples, what does he want us to do? He wants us to love each other in a way that violates cultural norms. Let me say this too. Even relational norms. Look at verse 1. It says, Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that His hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved His own who were in the world, He loved them to the end. Now, look at how sad the next verse is. During supper, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him. Look down at the verse 10, the last half. He says to his disciples, You are clean, but not every one of you. For he knew, he knew who was to betray him. That was why he said, Not all of you are clean. When you read the Gospels and you come across this guy named Judas Iscariot, when we read it, we picture him with a sinister look on his face and almost like the villain mustache and, you know, some secret box of money that he's stashing away out of uh, gifts that they were... You have to always remember that when you read in the Gospels and it talks about that Jesus sent the disciples, sent the apostles out to do something... Judas Iscariot was one of them. For instance, when Jesus sent out His disciples to go preach the gospel, preach the good news in the towns of Judea, one of the preachers was Judas Iscariot. He was preaching the good news that the Messiah has come and it's Jesus of Nazareth. When Jesus sent the apostles out to do miracles, to heal the sick, uh, to cast out demons. Just wherever you find it, go, go care for people, love people. One of the people who could heal the sick miraculously, cast out demons by Jesus' name, was Judas Iscariot. And here's the thing, so much so that when Jesus around this table this night says, one of you is going to betray me. It's not as if the other 11 kind of went, mm-hmm. Yeah, three guesses and the first two don't count. What was their response? Who is it? Is it me? No one knew. No one spotted Judas Iscariot, but Jesus knows what's in the heart. And he kneels, knowing full well what's about to happen. 
that this is the, this is the human means into my torture. He kneels before him and he washes both his feet that are about to run off and betray him. And Jesus says this, do that. You do that with one another and you will be blessed. There are a million applications of this, but I want you to think about one. And again, I'm thinking about our life together as a church. Part of our life together as a church are our community groups. And if you're visiting and don't know what I'm talking about, these are little subsets of downtown Presbyterian, and they meet in homes all throughout Greenville. And it's something that we say is a non-negotiable for our, our membership. It's just that we have to have groups that are smaller than this to build real relationships. Now, think about this. If you get involved in a community group and you start going on a regular basis, there reaches a threshold and you can feel it. And the threshold is when you've been, you know, your first time, it's kind of new, second, third, fourth time, less new, you know, but still kind of getting used to this and meeting these people. But if you keep going long enough, there's a threshold you hit where you have to ask yourself, what am I going to do with these people? And what I mean by that is that there are going to be people in that group that you click with naturally. Like you could think, yeah, I'd like to have lunch with that person, or man, I'd like to go on a trip with that person. But there are going to be people that you're going to think, I would never go on a trip with that person. And I would never want to hang out with that person. And like for the eighth week, there he is. There she is. And what really pushes you to that threshold is when the other person needs something. And what's weird, and again, I'm saying this from experience. What's weird about it is that it messes with social norms and cultural norms. Social cultural norms are we will be nice to each other, we will be civil, uh, we might even have like some kind of group thing together, but you will have your group of people you're close to over there, and I will have my group of people that I'm close to over here. Y'all can count on each other, we can count on each other, but let's not mingle the groups. Let's pick our own groups. What do you do when you're staring across a living room or a dinner table at someone who is not culturally, socially, someone you would normally commit to and they need you? And what that is doing and what we're sensing at that moment that comes bubbling up is lovelessness. And usually our remedy for it is, you know what, it's right. I need other people in my life, so what I'm going to do is I'm going to get organized. And I am going to organize my schedule so that I can fit more people into it and I can be involved with... And already we are giving ourselves away. Because what is the premise of that whole thing? It violates the picture that Jesus has just given us. It is saying, I will fit other people in on my terms. I will achieve my objectives and I will leave some margins left over and I will let people fit in those margins, but I will set the terms. Jesus is on the, uh, he is on the edge of an abyss that is so scary 
He has been telling His disciples for three years, this is what's coming. And when He comes to it, He begs God three times, don't let it happen. And, the, and they don't know that, but the picture He gives them of who He is is to kneel at the feet of people who are going to run like jackrabbits and care for them when He most needs attention, when He most needs to be embraced and encouraged and strengthened and prayed for, He is giving Himself away. Jesus says, love each other like that. Churches strategize. How do we make uh, the gospel, how do we make Jesus attractive to people who don't know about Him? And we come up with a million strategies. In this very chapter, what does Jesus say? Here is how all men will know that you are my disciples by your amazing programs. Uh, By your awesome poverty ministry that will be better than any other poverty ministry in town. Here's how all men will know that you are my disciples, by your love for each other. That's how they'll know. And I hope that what's going on inside of you right now is, I don't love people like that. Uh, Number one, you're in good company. Number two, I've got very good news for you, because this text gives us the source for it. If that's the picture of love, what is the source of love like that? What, is the key, what are the key terms in this passage? What terms keep getting repeated? It mentions feet a lot. But what is the term that keeps coming up like a dozen times? Washed. Bathed. Clean. A dozen times it's through this text. Those terms. And there's this strange exchange that takes place between Jesus and Peter that is right in the middle, and it has everything to do with how we think about being clean and where you get this kind of love. Did you catch the strange exchange? Look in verse uh, 8. Peter said to him, You shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered him, If I do not wash you, you have no share with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. That has to be the fastest reversal ever. Ah, oh, you can't come near me. Ah, oh, wash every bit of me. Now here's the key. Verse 10, Jesus said to him, The one who has bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean, and you are clean. What does that mean? What does that mean? Jesus says this to Peter and to the room. You are clean. You have been bathed because of me. But you still need me to wash your feet. It's the the picture of someone going to a social occasion in that cultural setting, taking a bath, but just because of the Judean countryside, on the way there your feet get dusty. All of you is clean You got clean, you had your bath, your feet still need cleansing. What is Jesus giving us a picture of? It's this, is that when you believe in Him, when you follow Jesus of Nazareth and take Him at His word, He makes you clean. He washes away our guilt. 
past, present, and future. He washes away our shame. And if you're really in a relationship with Him, you don't just get that one time and go, thanks, and I'll be over here. But to really be in relationship to Him is to, is to have the confidence He cleansed me, but to be able to come to Him again and again with a felt sense of our own dirtiness and say, only you can make me clean. Only you can make me clean. The tightest religious people, the most unbending, the most unsympathetic, are going to be the ones who believe that what Jesus did was give me that that great one-time washing away of all my past sins, and I'm so glad that now I obey Him. The main thing He does is give me an example now. Those are the tightest, hardest people. You know who the warmest people are? And the most sympathetic people is those who have looked to Christ for that definitive bath, but come to Him over and over for the rest of their lives and say, I know I said to you yesterday I was never going to do that again, but we both know that I did. And to find that someone who should judge us is yet again kneeling, washing us. It's not an information problem. We knew better. Yet again, washing us. Jesus said this, if you have been forgiven little, you know what happens? You love little. If you struggle to be a kind, not just nice, but a loving person, you know what the roots of it are? Is that deep down, I can say this without knowing you personally, because I know myself, and this is what the Word says is that what is going on inside of you is you have begun to believe that you are a good person. But if you believe that you, left to yourself, fail again and again and again, and you go to Jesus a lot and say, I'm the problem. I'm the problem. And you find Him washing you again. You know what? His love grows in your heart and you can extend it to others. And let me end by saying this. When we first got that wooden octagonal thing over by the door, that's the baptismal font with a cross on top of it. When we got that, I immediately unpacked it and stuck it right there before anybody could put it somewhere else. And I got a lot of questions about... I don't know if you noticed this, but that's totally in the way when you walk in the door. That is an ancient practice. Why is that an ancient practice? It's not commanded, but that is a visual way of saying what to the room? That the only real way into the community of God's people is the confession that I need washing... But on top of that, the only way you're really going to have a community and not just a preference group that says, yeah, I like the music there and I like the exposed brick walls, but to really have a coherent community of of people, a family, the only way you're going to have that is again and again, week after week to be reminded, we are the people that need washing. 
But why is the cross on top? Uh, Because we gather together around the name of the one who will do it. When that gets into our bones, we love. When we think we're good, other people in this church are an intrusion. But you know what's great? If you realize that about yourself, you can go to Him and ask for that to be washed and get yet another lesson in love. Amen. Let's pray together. Dear Jesus, we can only love because You first loved us. We praise You as the one that while we were yet enemies, You died for us. We pray that we would not believe the myth that we're good, that we don't need a lot of cleansing. Oh Lord, we dirty our feet. Would You wash us yet again? Father, if in this room, men or women, children, have never looked to you to say, I, I, need, I just need the bath to begin with, would you enable them to turn to you and cry out for that cleansing, that mercy, and wash them, that they might learn how to go to you for the rest of their lives. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.